I didn't come here to make friends. Has anybody ever heard that before? That phrase? It's said to have originated on the show Survivor, right? And then have been perfected on The Apprentice. It's the battle cry of reality TV, right? Whether uh, we're talking about The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Top Chef, no phrase has summed up reality TV contestants uh, more than this one. I'm not here to make friends. So there's this guy named Rich Jaswiak. He's a blogger for VH1. He spent a lot of time uh, dissecting reality TV shows and analyzing them. And he says that this phrase underpins the entire philosophy of reality TV. People are in it to win it. He says, reality TV is a place where a declaration of incivility is not just acceptable, it's inevitable. He quotes one contestant as saying this about his fellow contestants. I will step on the back of their necks to get to the top anytime I feel it's necessary. We've got another guy who lied about the death of a family member to win a challenge. Uh, so now these people don't always win, right? But they're the ones who are awarded with the most screen time. They're the ones who go on in our memories. They're the ones who gain their own platform, maybe uh, a reality TV show of their own. Maybe a spot on the administration of the President of the United States. Uh, <laughs> not being here to make friends seems to pay off. You know, it's even to the point where the culture of not here to make friends is so strong on reality TV that if you even try to make friends, if you even uh, try to maintain civility, you're shamed. There's this one clip from The Bachelor where one woman says to another in disgust, are you here to make friends? And then the other one replies very defensively, no, I'm not here to make friends. I'm not saying that. It's actually offensive to come on a reality show and desire to come away with any kind of relational connection. It's not just offensive. It's actually seen as unintelligent, unwise. You don't understand the game if you have any inkling of this desire. The wisest in reality TV are those who are the most ambitious, those who keep the prize at the forefront of their strategy. I mean, you can make alliances, but you can't make friendships. You can help somebody else as long as you know that, uh, that they're going to help you, and as long as both of you know that you could turn on each other at any moment and stab each other in the back. And that just has to be okay. There's this underlying contract of, of self-interest, mutual self-interest. That's the wisdom of reality TV, right? But it's not really just the wisdom of reality TV, is it? Reality TV brings something out in humanity that's already there. See, we probably don't step into real-life situations and make this declaration, right? Uh, even when we mean it. Like when you're uh, crammed in the middle seat of an airplane, do you look right and left and say, guys, just so you know, I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> Even though it's true, right? When you start a new job, do you walk through the doors and just declare, I'm not here to make friends. I have actually heard that one on the job, though, before, but uh, most of us probably don't say it. But uh, it doesn't mean it's not true, Right? And that doesn't mean that we haven't bought into the wisdom that our world tells us will take us places, the wisdom that will help us achieve our aspirations. James is going to talk about that wisdom today in our passage. 
He's going to point to it and call it earthly wisdom. And as he's writing to the church, we're going to see that, you know, spoiler alert, we're not immune to reality TV wisdom. Often, we're just quieter than those who are on TV. He's also going to point to a different kind of wisdom, a better wisdom, what he calls wisdom from above. So we're looking at two wisdoms today. One we're going to label earthly wisdom, the other heavenly wisdom. And we're going to talk about the heart and the harvest of each. So earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Asking the questions, what's the heart of earthly wisdom? What's the heart of heavenly wisdom? And what's the harvest that each of these bring to our lives and to our church? So we're on the heels of an extensive passage that Kevin preached uh, last week where James intensely preaches on the importance of our speech and, what, uh, and the fact that it has great implications for our church, for our lives. He says that the tongue has the power to set on fire the entire course of life. He tells us we can't from the same mouth bless God and curse our brothers and sisters. The two just aren't compatible. Then he makes the transition into our passage, and he goes a little deeper into the heart of this. Look with me at James 3.13. Here's how James transitions into this new passage. He asks us this. Who is wise and understanding among you? So James begins this passage with a question. Uh, He's asking his Christian audience, who among you is wise and understanding? No definition of wisdom or understanding has been given yet. He just asks the question. My guess is that a lot of people, whether Christian or non-Christian, then, now, would be internally raising their hands at this point, right? Okay, well, that sounds like me. I mean, I make good decisions. I've progressed in life. I've received a lot of affirmation for my accomplishments. I'm a good problem solver. People come to me for advice, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. I've avoided uh, most of life's pitfalls. Maybe for the Christian, you'd say, I know scripture, I'm part of a church gathering, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm embedded in the life of the church, so I feel like I'm pretty wise. But then James issues this opening call to his readers, to us. He asks, who among you is wise? And then he follows it up with this call. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So already, James is setting forth a definition of wisdom which goes beyond knowledge, goes beyond good decisions. This wisdom uh, that's visible to those around you. It's a wisdom that results in good conduct. There are two words that are used for good uh, in the New Testament often, and one of them is agathos. It's a Greek word uh, in the original Greek meaning goodness like a holy goodness or, or a worthiness. So in Mark 10, 17, when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he says, addresses him as good teacher, he's using this word, agathos. But the other word is kalos, or some pronounce it kalos. It's a goodness that's useful. It's, it's a lovely kind of goodness that's praiseworthy, that's attractive to people from the outside, brings beauty to the world. James uses this word when he says, show your wisdom by your good conduct. We already know that James's definition of good works or good conduct has to do with an active faith, a faith that leads us to prioritize others over ourselves. We preached on that a few weeks ago. When he talks about good conduct, that's what he's talking about. Then he calls us to show 
these works in the meekness that comes from wisdom. And we've talked about meekness in this letter before too. A few weeks ago we said meekness is gentleness, humble gentleness. So before we've even gotten to the two wisdoms, we have this call to wisdom that breeds humility, wisdom that's evidenced by works marked by beautiful, attractive behavior. So with that in mind, let's read on, and uh, we're going to look at the first rendition of wisdom that James is going to define. He's going to talk about the heart of earthly wisdom. If you look with me at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So James has kind of invited us uh, with this question about who's wise. And then anyone who's decided to engage with that question is now subject to his examination of their version of wisdom. And the first place he goes is to the heart of false wisdom. And I want us to subject ourselves to this examination as well. James is out for our good. God is out for our good in his word. He wants us to engage with it honestly and to be shaped and formed by him toward the likeness of Christ. So let's engage with this. Verse 14 calls us to shed the facade. James is saying, if you've got these things in your heart, don't boast about how wise you are. Don't be false to the truth. Answer my question honestly, who has wisdom? If bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are in your heart, maybe take a second before you raise your hand. Take a second to examine your wisdom, to compare it to what the word of God says. The goal is never to feel defeated because we lack these things, but to understand our need before God. James lays out this twofold heart of false wisdom, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. What a pair, right? This pair has brought down kingdoms. It's resulted in tremendous atrocities that have been committed across the world throughout history. It's also the pair that causes a spouse to have an affair, a coworker to step on the necks of anybody to get ahead. It's a pair that causes a dad to leave his family or a mom to check out vice versa. It says, I hate when others have what I want. I deserve to have it more than they do, and I'm going to work like crazy to get it. Have you ever felt angry when, when a friend has shared good news in their life or, or disappointed? Have you ever felt uh, maybe glad when a friend failed or a coworker failed, someone around you failed? These are the darker parts of ourselves that we rarely explore, right? I mean, I'll confess that I have. I've thought irrationally, hey, how's there going to be enough for me if this person gets what I want too? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it's happened. Or, you know, I'm kind of glad it didn't work out for him because his personality drives me nuts and he needs to learn that that has consequences. Yeah, I'm... You relate, right? It's good news for me because I'm still in the running and my work's more likely to be noticed now. There are so many different ways that we could, that we could sum that up. But I've been there. 
I've gotten promotions because of the failures of others and not thought twice. And in one form or another, so have you, right? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. I'm not here to make friends, but the quiet and festering version. James is really calling us to announce it out loud like the reality TV stars do. At least they're honest, right? Let's get there in our hearts today. Let's admit that we just might be that person. Draw that to the surface today as we seek what God has for us, what God has for people like us in this passage. I promise he's not just going to leave us there. Verse 14 is saying that to claim to have wisdom and give way to these qualities is to be false to the truth. It's actually not wisdom at all. He's going to go further into the heart of this false wisdom's identity. Uh, Let's read verse 15 again because we're going to talk about what he's saying here. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So in talking about the heart of false wisdom, James is identifying it for what it is. He says, first and foremost, that it is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This isn't what uh, God has intended for wisdom. There's nothing heavenly about this. In fact, it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. That's uh, quite the descent there, right? Earthly? It's like, all right, I see that. To unspiritual, it's like, hmm, okay. Demonic? What? James is saying this wisdom bred out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is native to this world. It's earthly. It's born from within, not from above. And lastly, he says that it's demonic. So he's saying that it originates from the lower spiritual world. This wisdom is anti-God. And if you want an example of this wisdom in the Bible, go back to Genesis 3. You'll see it there. God creates this beautiful world. And in that world, he puts a garden. And in that garden, he puts a man and a woman And they're given the task to fill the world and to cultivate goodness, to beautify the world and the earth in relational harmony with one another. They're given free reign to explore and to eat any of the delicious things that grow there, except one, right? They're not supposed to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Note that word knowledge, right? And their temptation begins when the devil enters the garden as a serpent and tells Eve that the reason God doesn't want her to have the fruit is because he's withholding from her. God doesn't want her to be like him. So she listens to the lie and she eats the fruit. Why? Well, maybe for the first time, some bitter jealousy arose in her heart. I mean, without a doubt, we can say that her actions revealed a selfish ambition to have what God has, to have what she thought she deserved. Then she gives it to her husband. And what happens? God calls Adam in the garden and asks him if he's eaten the fruit. 
And what's the first thing that Adam does? He says this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He throws her under the bus. It's a truthful statement, but you hear that, right? There's not really a straight answer and an acceptance of his own responsibility. You gave me this woman and she gave me the fruit. Oh yeah, and I ate it. And God tells them that because they've done this, that the earth is cursed and that they'll experience the consequences of their decisions, mainly living out in a world of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. The word desire there is the same one that he uses later when he says, sin desires to consume you. And and he says, your husband will rule over you. Suddenly, the beautiful garden has become reality TV. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition have their origins in the lower spiritual world. Wisdom born out of these is demonic, James says. He says it's earthly. You see that, right, in Genesis 3? He says it's unspiritual. It's from within. It's not from above. And we gravitate naturally this way. That's the effect of the fall of humanity that that I just summarized for you. And I recommend going back to Genesis 3 and, and reading that word for word in the Bible. The heart of false wisdom is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So now James is going to talk about the harvest that this wisdom brings. What happens when we go about life sowing this wisdom? Look with me at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, we can't expect anything else. It's the natural next step. These things start from within, but they have dark outward consequences as well. And let's remember that James is writing to a church here. That was his original audience. And the church was actually pretty new at this time. Uh, The earliest estimates put this letter as written between 45 and 48 AD. Even the latest estimates aren't too long after that. So we have a church here, the actual whole church of Jesus Christ that's barely in its teens. I don't know how old this church is, but I know that it's pretty young if the entire church of Jesus is barely in its teens. All that to say, the olden days aren't always picturesque, right? And the early church is just as much of an example of struggle as it is victory. We have a lot in common. You know, we're a young church. Seven Mile Road is a young church. And I'll be honest, I haven't experienced a lot of this here. God has blessed us graciously. Uh, we're we're uh, experiencing love and community in beautiful ways. But we're fooling ourselves if we believe that our lives out there don't affect our lives in here. If your work life is motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, don't think that we don't bring that mess in here. Same for your family life or or your social life. And the converse is true too. Uh, Our hearts as a family of God will be displayed when we're carrying out our daily lives. James says, these bring disorder. 
and every vile practice. The church can go reality TV really quick. And it's ugly. James tells us that the mess is already inside. It just has yet to be revealed. The disorder James is talking about here speaks of instability. That word disorder is the same one he used back in chapter 1 when he said a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now this doesn't have to be us 100% to be true of us. We're flawed. But again, God doesn't call us out in his word to shame us. He doesn't call us out to discourage us, but to draw him to himself because we need him. The heart of earthly wisdom yields a harvest of disorder and every ugly practice you can think of. But that's not the end of the story. Let's see what James has to say about wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. Look with me at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So essentially, wisdom from above is the opposite of everything that we've just been talking about. Let's look at this list. If you've been in James with us uh, for this series, you might have noticed that these concepts aren't new. This is like a synthesis of, of what James has been calling us to all along. He uh, starts out by telling us that wisdom is from above. At its heart, it's primarily pure. Then all that follows describes what pure wisdom looks like. So wisdom from above is pure. It's untainted. It's everything it seems to be. There's no dual identity. There's no ugly side of the coin. Wisdom from above is pure. And then it's peaceable or peace-loving. And when we think about peace, sometimes we think of this inner tranquility or we think about uh, tolerance. But if we're contrasting this with James's previous example of false wisdom, it's clear that peace means the dispelling of rivalries, of quarrels. It means peace that's made and forged in the face of anti-peace. Peace doesn't just happen. Peace needs to be made. So like so much of James's letter, this rings of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if we were to look at Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers choose peace over quarreling. They forge peace. So wisdom is peace-loving. And then he says wisdom is gentle and open to reason. It's not hostile. It's not unreasonable. This is like when James said to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, to be slow to get angry in chapter 1. Wisdom is open to reason. Another translation of that um, could be easily persuaded. Not gullible, but willing to defer for the sake of peace, willing to listen willing to be persuaded toward that behavior that we talked about that beautifies the world. Next, he tells us that wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruit, and it's impartial. All of these we've seen in James, and he's connecting these themes to a better definition of wisdom. In chapter 2, he calls the church to show mercy, to avoid the sin of partiality. And Clint preached on that a couple weeks ago and, and totally addressed that. And James is saying here, it's not just wrong. It's wrong 
and it destroys. It's actually unwise. Partiality is actually unwise. He talks about being full of good fruits. And one of the verses that Kevin preached from last week was, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? He was telling us how we can't bless God and curse our siblings in Christ. The fruit represents the root. Now he's telling us heavenly wisdom is a root that yields good fruit. Visible, tangible, beneficial, high quality. These are the characteristics. This is the heart of wisdom from above. And James tells us that we can expect a harvest when our lives are characterized by this wisdom. Let's look at the harvest that he says is brought about by heavenly wisdom. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James has been telling us that wisdom brings peace. It's just going to, in the next couple verses, he's going to turn his attention toward conflict in the church. We're not going to get to that in this sermon. Clint's going to preach on that next week. But uh, he's prefacing that in our passage today by telling us that wisdom brings peace. And peace is both the environment where righteousness thrives and the result of that righteousness. Those who make peace sow righteousness and will see a harvest of righteousness in a peace-loving environment. So in chapter one, James told us that our anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. And here in chapter three, he's telling us that our peace does. Peace is the marker of the children of God. Remember Jesus said that. Peace and righteousness replace disorder and every vile practice when the wisdom from above conquers the wisdom from below. I probably say this a lot, but I think we're starved for peace. I think we want this. Relational strife and strain are so painful. They're so painful and tiring and exhausting. No matter what sphere of life it occupies, we carry it from one to the other anyway. Whether it's our fault or not, we want peace. We want wisdom from above. But how do we get there? Can we really attain to this picture that James is painting? It almost feels hopeless because he paints one bleak picture that makes us feel awful. And then paints another beautiful one that makes us feel... Kind of the same, right? We actually can't do this. You can't actually do this. But I want to point you back to James 3.15 where he says, uh, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. So what we're describing is not just uh, wisdom, you know, heavenly wisdom, but he says, comes down from above about heavenly wisdom. He says that it's a sent wisdom, basically. It's wisdom that's condescended from heaven. Who characterizes this wisdom? Who came down from above? James doesn't explicitly mention Jesus here, but he's assuming that his readership knows about him. That's why he's writing to them. Jesus is the wisdom from above. Everything in that list of wisdom has been said about him. He's pure. He's the spotless lamb, the sacrifice that took away our sin, who suffered and died under our false wisdom. 
He's peace-loving. Ephesians 2 talks about how he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between you and God and between you and your neighbor. He's gentle. Man, is he gentle. Have you read his interactions with people in the Gospels? When Isaiah prophesies about him, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's Isaiah 42.3. He didn't come to break you. He didn't come to stomp you out. He's open to reason. Do you know how patient he is? He's the God who says, come, let us reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 1.18. He's full of mercy. Our mercy is found on the cross where he took the punishment for our sin, for our earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. And he's impartial and sincere. He's got nothing to hide. He is who he says he is. James says that there's no partiality with him. He loves the ignored. He loves the forgotten. He loves the poor. And he loves the praised. And he loves the acknowledged. And he loves the rich. Because we all need him. He characterizes the wisdom from above. He was sown into the ground And he was raised on the third day. And his harvest of righteousness is still yielding peace for you and for me, in us and through us. He's alive. We have peace in him. And he's promised that he's returning and that he'll bring unthreatened, unhindered, unbreakable peace on earth earthly, unspiritual, demonic, destructive wisdom will be enveloped and extinguished by the wisdom from above. Let's put our faith in him, not only to follow him and pursue his example, but to rely on his sufficient work on our behalf. Pray for his help. He's with you. God is with you. And if that's not you, if you have yet to believe this, to accept this, I just invite you to take this opportunity to believe right now. Whether you're Christian or not, I know that you're tired. We're not just perpetrators of false wisdom, right? We're also victims of it. And it's tiring. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he means that. He's sincere.